0: As we, oh, good. No. No? He, I, I swear we had a plan. I'm on, on. lab two. Th- okay, cool. What were you going to say?
1: Oh, I was going to tell them we're going to share the sermon time.
0: That is important. Tell them about that.
1: Yeah, so often at the 830 services, we will split the sermon. Sometimes we'll just take turns. Someone will go first, Someone will go second. But uh, Amy and I, after looking at what God was doing and speaking to us through the text, thought, man, we, our sermons sound a lot the same. Maybe we could do this together. So that's our plan this morning.
0: That is our plan. So one of the things that we know to be true is that when people come to church, they tend to be looking for truth, sometimes big truths, eternal truths, timeless truths, and we have one for you today. Now, some of you might have already uncovered this truth at some point in your life, but if you haven't yet, here's your big truth bomb for this Sunday, October 1st. It is that families are messy. Okay, you're chuckling. Some of you know, they know already, okay. But to be clear, I don't mean the kind of messes where like they leave crumbs in rooms where nobody has eaten in six months or they have handprints eight feet up the wall. Although in my house, both of those things happen. I have no idea how. The kind of mess we're talking about when we say families are messy is that deep kind of soul crushing mess that makes you go, why do these people show up to the family reunion? Do, do I really have to admit that I've ever met that person before? Or sometimes maybe you're even praying, like, Lord, why did you think it was right for me to be born into an episode of The Springer Show? Like, this can't be the best plan you've got. Now, pastors are not exempt from this. I've got to tell you that my people are a complete mess of messiness. But for better or for worse, we believe in live streaming around here, so I really can't tell you about our modern messes for at least another 20 years. But I can dig deep in the family archives and tell you about some of our old messes. So the thing that some of you know about me some of you don't is that my maiden name is Stickler, and I was born and raised in central Pennsylvania. And in central Pennsylvania, there are a tremendous number of Sticklers. They're all over the place. So this is a story about one Stickler who lived a very long time ago. Now, the first time I heard about him, I was probably in the eighth or ninth grade. I don't remember the exact age, but I was really excited because I heard that one of my relatives was the main character in a book. And I was an avid reader, I love reading, so I knew I had to read this book and learn about my family history. And good news for me, my parents are really big readers, so I knew we already owned the book. All I had to do was go and find it, and I would learn about this man named Frank Stickler. So I looked through the bookshelves, anxious to see what I was gonna learn, but of course that was before I knew what the book was about. So when I pulled it off the bookshelf and I saw the cover, I think we have a picture of the cover, That was my first hint that this might not be the story I was hoping to uncover. So the main character who was one of my relatives in that story is a man named Frank Stickler. And Frank was my great, great grandfather's older brother. He was born in 1858 in central Pennsylvania. And the story picks up in the summer of 1878, just before he turns 20. That summer he and five men got together and they had a plan. Their plan involved taking out multiple life insurance policies on their elderly neighbor. And in total, these life insurance policies totaled $10,000. Now, if you're not great at inflation, $10,000 in 1878 is a little less than $300,000 today. So if we needed a second clue that this might not be going somewhere good, I have a relative who's taking out $300,000 on an old neighbor. So the men said their plan is they're going to take care of this old man for the rest of his life, and then when he dies, they're going to use the money for his funeral and burial expenses. And the rest of his life came very quickly. So it was December of 1878, just months after they took out the insurance policies, that this old man was walking across a footbridge, fell in, and drowned. An overinsured man falling into a creek months after $10,000 of insurance is taken out on him, It was ruled an accident, but really quickly, questions started popping up. They started saying, why is there so much insurance on this man? Why did people witness him fall into a creek and nobody helped him or nobody tried to resuscitate him? So Frank was under investigation for insurance fraud for a few months. But then an eyewitness came forward. And the eyewitness changed the trajectory of the whole story. So by the spring of 1878, Frank had been convicted of first-degree murder and was hanged for his trial, or hanged for his crime, because they found out that he was one of the two men who actually pushed this old man into the creek and held him there while he drowned. He was actively involved in this murder. Now, murderers are just one of the types of unsavory characters who do really unspeakable evil that I can tell you about in my own family tree, because families are messy. And in our scripture today, we pick up a very messed up story of a very messy family.
1: So last week, we left the story of Abram uh, where God is meeting him at his greatest desire, to have a family. He wanted more than anything to have a family. God said, if you trust me, I will give you a family. And even to this family that is blessed by God, murder and mess come along with it. Abram, after 11 years, is tired of waiting on God to get his act together and to give him a family. So he and Sarai come up with a plan where he will have an heir with Sarai, uh, Sarai's servant. So Sarai has a servant, um, gives the servant to Abram to have a child, and they have Ishmael. And Sarai, who was originally in on the plan, after Ishmael comes along and says, I don't like this plan anymore, she gets jealous and angry. She gets cruel and violent. When eventually... Abram and Sarah have a child named Isaac. Sarah makes sure that Ishmael and his mother are exiled, and Ishmael and his mother would have died in the wilderness if God had not intervened. The next generation of Abram's family isn't any better. Isaac and his wife have two sons, Jacob and Esau, and it says they were fighting with each other since they were in the womb. This is a sibling rivalry at its fullest. Twice Jacob steals blessings from Esau to the point where Esau is ready to kill Jacob and Jacob has to run for his life. And he hides from Esau for 20 years. While Jacob is away, he ends up getting tricked into marrying sisters. He ends up marrying a woman he doesn't even like and then waiting seven years to marry the woman he actually likes. And so he has this wife that he mistreats and ignores and treats like property and then this one that he loves. The wife that he loves is unable to have children for a very long time. And uh, Jacob, in, while he takes care of the children from the wife that he, he doesn't even like, is a really horrible father. One of the stories in the Bible talks about how one of his children was sexually mistreated and he doesn't even try to seek justice or to protect her at all. He doesn't try to be a good dad. And it only keeps getting worse with Jacob's sons. So he has, a, Joseph, ha, or excuse me, Jacob has this favored wife. Too many people's names start with J. We'll try to work on it together. Uh, Jacob's favored wife, unable to conceive, finally has a child, Joseph, and Joseph is dad's favorite. Did y'all's parents have a favorite? This is when you say no. Parents don't have favorites. That's not how it's supposed to work. But even imagine thousands and thousands of years ago what it would be like to have ten brothers and more sisters but you're the favorite and joseph grows up proud and he makes an enemy of his brothers his brothers finally get together and say we we can't take it anymore we're going to kill him instead they throw him in a pit and as abigail was saying earlier they sell him into slavery when joseph was just 17 years old it's not just amy's family that is messy
0: It's true. So we get to Joseph, who is the son of adulterers and scoundrels of all kinds of types and liars and polygamists, and he's the brother of slave traders, and yet he's going to become the unlikely hero in our story. Joseph is going to come from a family that God has chosen for no discernibly good reason. He has picked these people out, although on their own they have next to no redeeming qualities. They have screwed up and they have failed spectacularly, generation after generation after generation. Now, we believe that all families are messy, but this is really some next level mess. There is no way that you can take a rock into Canaan where these people are living and throw it and not hit somebody from a less messed up family than the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Because they're messed up. (laughs) There is nothing about these people. They're not uniquely pious. They're not unusually devout. They are not above moral reproach. Nobody in the world is looking at the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and saying, that right there, that's the model for a good family. That is what we need to be. As a family, they are a complete disaster. And yet, as we go through this Joseph story, we're going to see that God is still walking with them and that God is still working on them. So Joseph's story really kicks into high gear in Genesis 39. When Joseph is now down in Egypt, he's enslaved and he's sold to Potiphar, who's one of Pharaoh's officials. And what we hear in Genesis 39 too is that the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. So while he's there in Potiphar's house, Joseph rises in prominence and in stature. He gets more and more responsibility, and Potiphar's wife takes notice. And she says, I want some of that. So she throws herself at Joseph. Joseph rejects her, and like every spurned woman in every bad movie you've ever seen, she seeks revenge. And she gets Joseph thrown in prison. So now he's been enslaved, he's in prison, but we hear at the end of Genesis 39, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And once again, Joseph gained power and status while he's in the prison. And part of this comes from the fact that he gets this reputation of being a really good interpreter of dreams. This message gets to Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes to Joseph and tells him about a dream that he's been having. And Joseph says, that dream, that's telling you that there's a famine coming to your land. So Pharaoh is understandably freaked out but he also trusts Joseph and he believes him. So he puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. Joseph is about 30 years old at this point. Joseph is in charge of everything in Egypt and the dream turns out just like Joseph said it would. There are seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and two years into the famine, Joseph is now 39 years old. Jacob, who's still living up in Canaan, which is modern day Israel, if y'all aren't great with your old, Old Testament geography. Jacob sends some of his sons down to Egypt where he hears there's grain available. So in Genesis 42, for the first time in over 20 years, Joseph comes face to face with the brothers who sold him to slave traders. Joseph recognizes his brothers first. We don't know exactly how that happened, but he recognized them, and then he kind of toys with them for a while. So he sends them back home saying, hey, don't you have another brother? Why don't you bring him here? And then when all the brothers are there, Joseph inexplicably like seats them in birth order at a banquet. It's a very weird scene. And then he sets Benjamin up to be the fall guy for this completely staged robbery, But finally, finally, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. He tells them, don't be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So the brothers are amazed. They go back home to Canaan. They tell their father, Jacob, what's happened. They tell him, Joseph's alive. He's alive in Egypt. And Jacob, who still loves this boy like his very favorite son, packs up all of his people and all of his possessions, all of their things, and they all trek together down to Egypt. And when they get there, Joseph says to Pharaoh, hey, this is my family. Where should I send them? And Pharaoh says, give them the best land anywhere in Egypt that you want. Give them everything. So Jacob and all of his sons and all of their cattle and all of their people, they get the best land in Egypt and they settle there. And Joseph continues his work overseeing this food distribution during the famine. And then 17 years pass pretty quietly. We don't really get much in the Bible about what's going on. There's 17 years from the time that Joseph has that initial reveal with the brothers until their father Jacob dies. So for 17 years, they all live together in Egypt. And today's story picks up where Joseph and his brothers have just come home to Egypt from a trip to bury their father in Canaan. Joseph, if you need help with the math, is now 56 years old. But he's going to come face to face with the realization that once again it is still true that his family is a mess. See what's at play here is that even the most dysfunctional family has somebody who kind of functions like a linchpin. There there is some person that as long as they're alive, as long as they've got their wits about them, they're keeping everybody in their lane and they're making sure that everything works and is stabilized. And Jacob is that linchpin in his family Jacob's other sons, who aren't Joseph, realize that dad might have been the only thing that was holding this family together. And they realize that, the, that, that Joseph might be coming to seek revenge now that dad's not around to witness it or to stop it. Because Jacob, with all of his flaws and all of his failings, has actually been the moral compass of this family. He's gone, and now the brothers start to wonder, is this about to be the Wild West?
1: So in their fear, this is what happens. Verse 16. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Did you hear in that introduction, remember your father? They didn't say our father. Remember your father that you love so much? Remember him? These are his last words. Please, please, please. That word please is used three times. Please forgive them. And it's here in this passage, in verse 17, the first reference to forgiveness in the whole Bible, in the story of God. What can heal this broken family? We are this fall looking into the Old Testament for Jesus, and I think we find Jesus right here. See, this family pain goes all the way back before Abram and his family goes back to Cain and Abel, this fr- fratricide that happens where a brother gets jealous of another and, and kills him. Every family from the first family up until Abram to now has been dysfunctional in some way. They avoid each other. They neglect each other. They show favoritism. They live in fear of each other. And you have to ask the question when you read through Genesis, is this all there is? Is our families always going to be like this? And then this word forgiveness. This is the Hebrew word nasah. Can you say nasah? You guys know some Hebrew. And in, uh, as words do, it has a range of meanings. In Hebrew, it can mean something like to lift, to carry. Um, it's almost as if it's saying in this passage, will you forgive them? Will you lift the weight of their guilt and shame off of their shoulders? Will you take the consequences of their choices from them? Relieve them of their fear of death. Will you forgive them? For God's sake, will you forgive them? There is a way to heal the world. A way to restore broken relationships. Forgiveness is possible for families and ultimately for all of us through the person of Jesus. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we get this story that says, You have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What God had in mind when he made us, we've all missed it. But there is a way to be healed, and that is the forgiveness offered ultimately through Jesus and the cross. Weeks ago, we talked about how God created the world and he loves it. He still does. But evil and sin have gotten into our families. It's gotten into us. And Jesus was God's plan to heal the world, to bring forgiveness. And when Joseph hears this plea from his death, excuse me, he weeps. Now, this is the seventh time time he's wept, and it doesn't even bother to tell us why, and we're left wondering, why does he weep? Why this time? You know, it would be enough if this was just his father's last words to him. This is the last time I'll get a note from his dad. That might be why he wept. It might be that he had unforgiveness in his heart, and his dad is saying, please forgive them, and he wasn't going to, but now his heart has been changed. He's been cut to the heart. Maybe more likely, he doesn't believe this letter is from his dad at all. Seems awfully convenient that his brothers are in danger and afraid, and then they get this letter saying the one thing they want to hear. But even more, I think, this is my best guess, I think he is brokenhearted because he thinks it's from his brothers, and he realizes his brothers still don't believe him after 17 years, that he loves them. He doesn't want this to be between them. They are consumed with the guilt and shame of their choices, And he has forgiven them a long time ago. And it is an awfully painful thing to love your family, to want to be known and loved by them, and to be missed by them. They don't even know him. And he weeps. Verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down at his feet. We are your slaves, they said. Again, they're afraid. It's been 17 years, and they're still afraid. That old thing about time heals all wounds? Not in families. Not here. They should rightfully expect to be punished in some ways, except God has been at work the whole time.
0: So we call this sermon series Jesus in the Old Testament. Pastor Kevin mentioned that a couple minutes ago. And so it's right and good to ask the question, so where is Jesus in the story of Joseph and his brothers? On the most basic level... Jesus is with Joseph. Remember, I told you a little bit about Genesis 39 earlier. In Genesis 39, we hear that while he's in slavery, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and he prospered. Now, I don't know who might need to hear it, but Jesus' life did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. That's when his physical life and existence happened. But Jesus is fully God. And God is eternal without beginning or end, which means Jesus also is eternal without beginning or end. So when the Lord is with Joseph in slavery, and when the Lord is with Joseph in prison, guess who was with Joseph? Jesus. Pastor Kevin got it. Jesus. Oh, that was an all play, but it's fine. It's, you'll get the next one. So Jesus, by the by the power of the Holy Spirit, with God the Father right there with him, is is the one who transforms Joseph from this betrayed, enslaved teenager into a wise manager of the whole country of Egypt, who's able to face and forgive his transgressors. That I think would be enough, Jesus, in this story. But it's like a bad infomercial, because wait, there's more. The Old Testament is full of arrows that point us forward to Jesus and give us hints of what's coming along and gives us some idea of what's in his heart. And one of the huge unmistakable signs that shows us where the story is going and shows us what kind of a savior is on the way is Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, "'You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives.'" Now, if you like the big theological words, the big theological word that goes with that verse is providence. And if you don't like big theological words, that's fine. Because the point behind providence is that God is in control no matter what happens. And God has forever been in the business of using everything towards his good end. Biblical writers have known this and affirmed this time and time again. I've got a list of verses for you. I'll give them to you later because we're running low on time. But you can look at Job. You can look at Psalms. You can look in the Gospels. You can look, most famously perhaps, at Paul in Romans when he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I recognize that as soon as we start talking about evil, some of you are getting lost in other questions. And you want us to answer things like, Did God make evil? Why does God allow evil? Can we even say God is good given how much evil and pain and suffering we see in the world? And if God is really in control, why didn't he stop X or Y or Z? And I'm also painfully aware that many of you have deep personal experiences with evil and with hurt and with betrayal and with broken families. And in the midst of evil and brokenness, when you're living in it and experiencing the consequences of it, I know it can sound callous to say something like, it'll all be okay because God's in control and God's got a good plan. That's because the big picture does not change the present personal pain. And if you wanna have a more specific conversation about specifically what pain is happening in your life, we would love to do that. We have got five pastors around here. That's a great conversation to have with your pastors. But for today, I want you to try to step outside of your personal experience and be an observer of what God is doing, because this is a story of systems, and this is a story of the big picture. So God's providence and the role of evil in the world goes something like this. God made the world, and he called it good. God had a very good plan for all of his creation, and for reasons that I don't know, God gave creation the freedom to obey or to disobey. And through disobedience, evil came into our world. So did God make evil? No. Does God want evil? Certainly not. But for better or worse, God's way of dealing with evil tends to be by redeeming its consequences, not preventing it from happening.
1: So our story ends with the family of Jacob, all the sons of Jacob, Joseph and his brothers in Egypt, and they live out their days there together as a family. Uh, Joseph lives to be 110 years old, and he gets to see his great, great grandchildren. And as he dies, he says, hey, remember me, remember the promises of God. Take me with you when he gives you that land that he promised our forefathers. Take me with you. And then this verse 26 So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thus ends the book of Genesis. Evil did not have the last word. The story's not over, but we get a hint that forgiveness is real. There's something else going on in the world than just broken family relationships. That family was not, is not, shattered forever. God is and always is working for good. A few invitations this week as far as applying this to our lives— The first one is practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is real and it can heal relationships, but it is not easy. A great place to start with that is to confess your own sins to God and ask him for forgiveness. Get as specific as possible. Or ask a friend or a family member for forgiveness. Or extend forgiveness to a neighbor. Maybe start small. Maybe apologize to your daughter for eating the last of her donut without asking her. She's in child care. Um, there is so much more to say about forgiveness, so much more to do. Um, start small. I know some forgiveness will take years, and we don't want to zoom past that, but a great way to begin applying this to our lives is just practice a little bit of forgiveness.
0: So one way that I would invite you to apply it to your life too is to reframe and ask different questions, maybe better questions. So there are times when I catch myself wondering, why in the world did God allow this pain? Or why didn't God stop that disaster? Or why, oh why, won't God just intervene and make everything good right now for the people I love? And I don't do this perfectly, but when I do catch myself having those thoughts, I try to stop and reframe my confusion and my frustration and I try to ask the question, how might God redeem this? Now, to be clear, that's not like a magic elixir. It's not a band-aid that fixes everything because asking that question doesn't solve the problems that I see and it doesn't take away the evil. Never once has it completely eliminated my hurt, but it does change me in some way when I look at the situation differently because in some ways when I start to ask the question, how might God redeem this evil that I see in the world? I can begin to enter with my imagination into this good world that God designed, and I can start to step into that creative and redemptive process of God, and it reminds me and helps me to hold on to the fact that God is taking a long, slow path to undo the damage and the mess that his
1: people have made in the world. And then finally, connected to that, is just look for the good that's available to you now. What is the good in the world now? Maybe you're in the midst of something and you don't know how it's going to turn out or how God's going to use it for good. But what's the good going on in the world right now? Because I think we live in a world where evil is way more obvious at times. Um, And how do we become people who can see the good of God right now? To be, uh, I was thinking about for this one, maybe it's more about what we stop doing than what we start doing. For some of us, we have the news on all the time or NPR, or we go to uh, news websites, and it's good to be informed, but the weight of that all day, bad news, all day, every day, it's too much. So an invitation today would just, one day this week, choose to go informed, uninformed, excuse me, maybe today, just don't go and read the news for a whole day, and just say, God's taking care of the world. I don't have to. I don't have to know every bad story that happens. Maybe seeing the good in our lives this week would be what we don't do. Uh, more than what we do and we can pray and ask God to give us eyes to see so let's do that together let's pray together God would you surprise us with your goodness would we see you over and over and over again at work in our lives like we saw and you did in Joseph Joseph became humble and kind because you were with him all the way would we see you at work in our lives and in the world help us Help us trust that you are always working for good. Amen.